Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. Before we jump into today's episode, let me tell you a little bit more about what Data Unchained is about. The world has really evolved to a decentralized world, and the paradigm for data access has changed. Getting data to remote workers, to distributed applications, multiple cloud regions, and even out of the edge in places where research is being done is a really big challenge. And these challenges need to be overcome to do things like create new treatments, innovate, provide research, and provide new products in a wide variety of industries, including genetics and life sciences. Data Unchained digs into the challenges as well as the solutions to make data an asset globally to help fuel innovation. Today's guest is Kevin Haas. He's the CTO of Myriad Genetics. Kevin, thank you for joining the show. Yeah, certainly. Thanks a bunch for the invite and happy to help contribute today to the conversation. Awesome. So before we go into business, maybe talk a little bit about just kind of your background. I know we have a shared interest, at least I have an interest in a portion of your run, your athletic um, interest as a runner, but um, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to Myriad. Yeah, certainly. So I'm uh, actually a chemical engineer by training. I uh, went to school at UW-Madison for undergrad and then went to Berkeley for graduate school and was primarily at that point trying to research what are the new mechanisms in which we can take machine learning, artificial intelligence, and apply that at that point to how you solve uh, the world's challenges for renewable energy and how biological systems can be engineered to really help out the human condition and provide for a more sustainable ecosystem. And really enjoyed those experiences. And at the same point, uh, was having a great time in California as well. I uh, ran and raced for the UC Berkeley triathlon team. And for many years afterwards, actually served on the nonprofit board for USA Triathlon. So it was very uh, enjoyed being able to be out on the bike and swim. But at the same point, uh, professional passions really led me to how can you help out, treat, cure disease, help out people at a real broad-based scale with the innovations in biology, the innovations in medicine and genomics, and and really have found a profound benefit from working in the field of genomics. And it's something that's very personal, intimate. We all have DNA. We all have uh, our own story. And it's also the story of our families and what got us here and, and, and where we're going and how we can think about having better health outcomes through insights derived from our genetic information. Interesting. So that's a nice, diverse set of backgrounds, but it's also kind of what keeps us interesting and motivated. Um, tell us about Myriad. I think, again, as you say, it's kind of a personal topic when you think about DNA and uh, you know, the area where um, Myriad really excels in their research, but maybe share a little bit more about what your focus and mission are. Yeah, certainly. Um, Myriad was really founded as a precision medicine company and and really famous for working along with Mary Claire King and others around finding the genes that lead to breast cancer. So BRCA1 and 2, those genes that if you have a mutation that, um, and unfortunately, in, in a certain subset of our population does, it it confers about a 90% risk of developing breast cancer in your lifetime. And you got to imagine this was just a huge, profound in improvement in how you can care and treat for breast cancer. And what the company's done over the many years is innovate into how does that expand out into different treatment regimes as well. So more than just breast cancer, but 11 different types of cancer that have uh, treatment recommendations, either from those mutations that you inherit from your from your parents or those mutations that are intrinsic in in the particular cancer. Uh, but the company also is really thinking about, and our mission is how do we broadly treat disease, detect disease, and improve health outcomes. 
And so we also have a suite of services in the prenatal space as well. So couples that are looking to have a healthy pregnancy, we can uh, make sure we can look for inherited genetic disease or different febrile abnormalities. And then we also have a suite of products that help out within mental health as well. So it provides doctors signatures in the genome that influence how different antidepressants may influence your treatment and how you, what your body would best respond to. So the company in aggregate, it tests a lot of people. These are conditions like mental health disease, which afflicts 50 million people in the U.S., hereditary cancer, which can affect you know, 30, 30 million women who will qualify under guidelines for testing, or prenatal care, which 4 million live pregnancies in the U.S. Uh, every year. So it's it's very intrinsic into the next generation of medicine, and it's not it's not a pipe dream. It's here today, and it, it is really about the future. And the company is proud to really serve on the order of about a million patients every year. So a real-world impact that's powered ultimately by the science and the genetic data that uh, underpins all of that. That's awesome. I think that when you picture what genetic research is, and we talk about it a lot, you hear about it in the news, but can you share with folks a little bit more about what does it look like? How do you find a gene for a breast cancer potential mutation? And you know, how do, what does it look like when somebody's being tested, both you know, maybe in the clinic, but also in the labs? What's happening behind the scenes? Yeah, certainly. And, and it kind of has a, a couple of different parts. And so I'll just sort of lay out a little bit of the, the, the chain. And I think it starts more with what you think of as digital health solutions. So how can you think about looking at the medical records or people's clinical history and determining if they'd be a good candidate for testing? Do you have a family history? Have you had certain cancers yourself? And and so that as much of a data problem and an AI problem as it is a human interaction. How do you make this translatable to millions of people in the U.S.? And then once you find out your candidate for testing, and then it goes into our next generation sequencing lab. And that really leverages a huge degree of automation to make this scalable at this real population scale. And so a huge use a huge suite of robotic tools that allows us to do all the chemical processing steps that prepares DNA into being able to be sequenced. Uh, labs in South San Francisco, Salt Lake City, and Mason, Ohio, and hundreds of robots that work in tandem and in concert to be able to do that, along with you know, really skilled, trained lab scientists and lab technicians that can ensure you know, insanely high degrees of accuracy and quality. Um, but the sample types are usually a, a blood test or a saliva test or a cheek swab or, you know, sample the tumor. And, and that goes through a multi-day process of extracting DNA and being able to measure that on, on different sequencers. And the DNA problem is intrinsically a, a big data problem in the sense that DNA is larger as 3 billion base pairs in just your human genome alone. And you're generating on the order of scale for our company, probably on the order of petabytes a year in, in genomic information. Um, but that's all for what we would term the secondary analysis. What genetic mutations do you have? I think really where a lot of the biggest challenges are are really in what we would inter call tertiary analysis or clinical uh, interpretation, which is your particular unique genomic signature. And we all are very unique and have you know a million mutations that make us different from from the person sitting next to us. Which one of those few actually have implications that allow you to better predict or treat or care for disease. Um, and, and that's a problem not just of of amalgamating a lot of data, but that's where the insights had to derive. And that's the synthesis of really a huge host of different distributed decentralized data pieces from either clinical research or our own database or uh, different more algorithmic prediction engines. And you have to synthesize all of these pieces together 
And it's that real nexus that then allows you to ultimately deliver back to the patient and their provider a very obvious interpretable report. This is what makes you unique, and then this is the best way to have that have an influence on your health. One of the things that I find fascinating about talking to folks like yourself, the CTOs of genomics institutes have really interesting skill sets because they need to understand the science as well as the IT systems behind the science. Um, and when you think about the front end of the research, which you were just talking about creating, you know, as you said, you know, petabytes of data, you know, for different tiers or the different when you're, I think you said that was in this, just in the secondary um, or research. What do the data systems look like behind this? And they are, are they owned by Myriad or is this something that the World Health Organization, like whose data is and whose systems does this data go to? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And it's, um, it leverages all what you would think of as the, you know, best practices in modern cloud computing. You, you leverage uh, AWS web services. We actually work with a, a company called DD Nexus, which really specializes in how you deploy secondary analysis at scale. And, and you have to bring horsepower to the equation because it can be tens of thousands of cores running on distributed servers across, across the world, really, to be able to facilitate this type of a testing. Um, so there is a lot of expertise in how you do the back-end systems, but then from the front-end and the, and the provider and the patient experience, it has to be as transparent and easy to use as it would be using your iPhone or, you know, really engaging with um, anything else that's a common consumer application. And so you have to have a very diverse set of skills for interacting with our customers, being able to run the testing, and then we aren't isolated within the healthcare ecosystem. We have to be able to be integrated and plugged in to reach people where they're already at today. And so that requires a huge amount of investment in uh, electronic medical health integration. So working with all the major providers of, of EMRs in large health systems. And you also want to be able to contribute to the larger research and the larger consortium data. And there's groups like ClinVar that... Um, we're starting to contribute to more and more over the years that try to aggregate the information, not just from our own testing lab, but testing labs across the world, because the synthesis of that information ultimately leads to the most um, obvious insight. And I'll give just a little explanation of how that works is, you know, Miri, the company that found BRCA1 and 2, you do that because essentially you were able to find that in these family populations, breast cancer was more common. And so you had populations where breast cancer was more common and you had populations where they're less common. And if you looked and saw what were those differences, you could see that it was these particular mutations and these particular genes that seemed to be the cause of the explanation for a lot of that difference. And so the, the path, the speed of research, the path of understanding new insights into precision medicine or the next frontier in what genetics and multiomics can do is exactly that. How do we combine more health outcomes and more genomic signatures, and the union of that is is really where the the insights come. When you think about deriving these insights, and um, you know, I think all of us who have been to any sort of doctor's office have signed our HIPAA compliance forms and mm-hmm. know that there's a lot of privacy around not just our healthcare, but you know, if if we've done progenity or anything like that, I think people are concerned about this type of information. So there is a lot of privacy involved. Um, how do you work with that as far as um, certainly sharing data across a larger community will help us to accelerate research and larger population sets help, but you also need privacy. How do you handle the data in that perspective? 
Yeah, it, it's something we take uh, very seriously and, and just a, a very strong respect for just the, the sacrosanct information that this is. This is very personal. It's very private information. And we also want to be able to make sure that, that people are aware and uh, properly consented for the work that they do. And so uh, the, that is both a front-end challenge, a, a legal and a compliance challenge, and then also there's the back-end systems that support that. And so you want to be make sure you can isolate data for people that have opted out of research. You want to make sure that you can share in the de-anonymized sense for when you're trying to combine um, information for consortium databases. You also want to make sure you have good federated segmentation for this research consortium, which doing this study on these samples can have access to this component of the data, but this larger piece is kept in a private uh, repository set aside. And and so it, it, does, it is as much of an accounting problem as it is a patient provider awareness um, challenge as well, but but it is incumbent upon us to do that job well. And, and I think if you don't, then that's where you can get the negative information, negative ramifications of people wanting to pull back. And and so you always want to be on the right side of history on that. And that, that means both being respectful of the patient and their privacy, but then also doing the work in which we make sure we're contributing back to the research community, our findings, and being part of that larger health e- ecosystem. Um, and there's been emerging regulations around that as well. I think one of the most recent has been the Cures Act coming out of Congress that try to in- encourage those to be uh, much more proactive with giving patients information that comes out of genomic testing and giving them the, their own autonomy and be able to make sure we can release results directly to patients as well. So when you think about these different interfaces, there's the patient testing, there's the researchers, there's people are creating treatments. Um, you and I, when we were prepping for this call, talked about the idea of kind of a healthcare data ecosystem. Um, does that exist today, or is that something that the industry is still working on? I think it's the the aspiration is there today, and they definitely do exist. So, an example of one that we've been working on is we have a a, a suite of products that's called the Precise uh, Oncology Solutions, and so for those of people that are unfortunate to have contracted cancer, it's a whole suite of different precision molecular diagnostics that can profile the tumor, look at all the mutations that it may have, different biological signatures that it may have, and that you can then uh, correlate that to different treatments, which one treatments are most effective, what protocols are most effective. But that's constantly iterating and constantly being involved in, in evolved. And so what we work with with a lot of our partners and providers is creating a data uh, science solution where essentially they can explore not only their one patient they're trying to treat, but how does that look like in their cohort of other patients they've treated or other patients that look like they have similar signatures to what they have. And then that allows you to essentially create the research you'd want. This cohort got this research protocol, this other cohort got this other one, which ones had better health outcomes, which one had less adverse effects. And so we have to create that ecosystem by offering up what we have, which is the genomic data. We have to be able to ingest what would be the indications for testing and then also be able to collect what were the downstream uh, research, I'm sorry, the downstream clinical outcomes as well. But we present this back not as as a thing for ourselves. We really offer that back up to the community. This is a portal by which our providers and our partners can log in and do their own exploratory analysis of their own clinical care management or their own uh, medical op, um, operations. And so this is something called the Precise Treatment Registry that we've uh, developed in combination with partners like DNA Nexus as well. Um, but uh, but many are at that early stage of trying to create these these systems. 
and you know several others in this space have done so as well. I think what the industry is going to realize is that what's going to be a paramount importance is to embrace open source standings, embrace responsible data sharing and responsible consent and federated access. But it should not be a walled garden. It shouldn't be our system and our data. It's really, it really, in a certain way, we don't even own it. It's it's the person's own information that they have about their their own genomic makeup. Um, and so I think those that are trying to create broader ecosystems of that by working with governments, with uh, commercial payers, with um, electronic medical records companies, the more embracing open source standards and encouraging collaboration, that, that I think is the, is actually the secret sauce of that. It's it's how do you dial up as much as possible the collaboration, and then that mutually benefits the entire industry. That makes the products more effective, and that makes those that are most uh, eager to participate in that the you know the preferred partners for for the customers that we have. And where does that occur? These you were talking kind of about standards and consortiums. Are there specific ones that folks are all kind of leaning into that these are the correct bodies or the ones that are most productive, perhaps? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Global Alliance for Genomic Health has been working on this for a long time. Uh, we participate in a in a consortium with Illumina and many others called the International Best Practices in Genomic Data Sharing. Uh, there's groups like the American College of Molecular Di- uh, Geneticists and and others that are in the academic and research community that that are trying to work on on these open source standards. Um, I would say the the there's parts of that that have been solved problems and the and parts of that that are hard infrastructure problems. Um, genomic data is relatively well structured, and you can figure out how to share that. There's IT challenges, but lots of innovations by people that have developed ways in which to share and collaborate data. The the real hardest part, the hard problem in all of this is really those uh, clinical outcomes. Uh, there's standards around how to structure that data appropriately. There is it's ICD-10 codes for why you got tested, or is it OMAP codes for what the or link codes for what was tested and OMAP codes for what was the outcomes. Um, but oftentimes you're, the the most valuable data is as a clinical note taken by a provider in an EMR, in an open text field, in a notes field. And how can you automate the parsing of that um, in order to create the next next degree of knowledge? Uh, that, that's really where we're still as an industry, I think, um, talking about the technical challenges and I think also the right just regulatory and incentive structure to say that this is part of being a participant in this medical uh, community in this health ecosystem is making sure that you have collected accurate and complete health outcomes in a structured way such that they can be parsed and shared and, and leveraged for both one's own understanding and records and then the larger research community. And how do you go about when you're talking about parsing open records um, or freeform fields and trying to gather information that's maybe not structured in or organized in the same way, office by office or patient by patient? Are you using things like artificial intelligence engines or is this humans looking at the records and pulling out the relevant information? And I mean, at the scale you're talking about of millions of people, I'm presuming it has something to do with machines, not just humans, but... Yeah, and it sort of depends on what degree of standard of quality that you need. If you're talking about treating a particular patient at this exact point in time, that is obviously worth the investment of doing it by human to make sure you're accurate. And you're. And we have both our own internal teams that are, you know, 
making sure that we've collected every piece of information that comes in our test request forms or parsing information back from the clinics and having that, that direct human-to-human interaction by either genetic counseling team or lab director team. And so that is obviously a scaling challenge, but it, in that case, it's obviously worth the investment because that's a patient sitting in front of you right now that needs to get the right therapeutic uh, to have the best health outcome. When you're talking about integrating more of these larger data sets for research and health insights, there what you're trying to find is signatures discovery of new biology, um, new mechanisms of disease. And so for there, more data is better, and then we can leverage more things like NLP or auto-parsing information that we have or thinking about different data feeds that can feed into that that you can validate a high degree of accuracy, but it's enough to be able to um, infer out what are genomic markers for for different disease. And, and I'll give one kind of example about how that's been uh, quite beneficial and quite uh, a real revolution that that we've worked on for many years is, you know, I mentioned Myriad was the company that discovered BRCA1 and 2, the genes that lead to breast cancer, and the ones that confer a really high risk for, for developing breast cancer in your lifetime. Um, the amount of people, even in the high-risk population, that have a BRCA1 and 2 mutation, though, is still relatively low. It's about 5% of the population. And so then there's the question of what's the right uh, what's the right breast cancer risk for the other 95% that don't harbor one of these mutations? Because it's not 0%. The average breast cancer risk for you know, multisynicities is more around 10%. And so how do you still personalize that information to tell people if they're high or low risk? And, and if you're high risk, that may mean uh, diagnostic MRIs every six months. And if you're low risk, that may mean mammography every couple of years. And so something that we have done and also working with groups like Tyler Cusick is you can incorporate different clinical variables that such as height, weight, age, and menopause that predict breast cancer risk. But we've also, by synthesizing parse medical records and the uh, genomic signatures that we have, we have identified polygenic, something called a polygenic risk score. So genetic markers across the genome that no one mutation is is indicative of, yes, you know you'll have disease, but in aggregate, they actually uh, work together to show a an increase or a decrease in breast cancer risk. So you're looking at the genes that lead to height, hair color, weight, whatever it is, potentially. And if you have a combination of those? Uh, yeah, it's 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 the similar mathematical mechanism to, let's say, the genetics that leads to height. There's no one height gene that you mm-hmm. find that I have the mutation for being tall or short. But there's lots of markers across the genome that you can add up and build a classifier around, and it will actually do a pretty accurate job of, or build a regression around and actually do a pretty accurate job of predicting uh, height. And so we similarly use a similar mathematical mechanism, making a classifier for yes or yeah, has breast cancer, has not. And you know we find hundreds of markers across the genome in, in multiple different ethnicities, and then you can produce uh, this, this genomic classifier that then for the other 95% of people, it can actually give them a highly accurate representation of their lifetime and five-year breast cancer risk. So that's a, kind of an example. And, and that the scale of that has to be large. I mean, the studies that we do and the validations have been powered by over 400,000 patients, uh, at least 10,000 in every ethnicity that we have. And and so that that is intrinsically a, a large data problem to be able to do, to do accurately. Um, but the really amazing thing is we think of the the innovation in genomic medicine, precision medicine that was brought along by discoveries of BRC1 and 2. This new 
this new frontier of looking at polygenic risk score markers are actually an aggregate just as informative and just as predictive as BRCA1 and 2. They confer just as much clinical utility. And so that's really where we see a lot of the forefront is how to use that in, in more different types of um, medical indications as well. So this concept of polygenic risk factors, did I get that right? Mm-hmm. So yep. for, in that kind of research, what kind of person is able to deduce the results and this is important and this is significant data, this is not? Are these data scientists? Is it applications made by companies in the life sciences space? Who is it that's determining this is an important um, set of data that we should start to maybe adjust patient treatment because of it? Yeah, certainly. It's it's a mix. It's really, I think, data scientists that first are thinking of algorithms and, and biostatisticians and genomics experts that put these together. Um, that's ironically relatively a, a much more straightforward machine learning problem in the sense that it is actually a well-posed you know, it's got a lot of variables to it, but it's a well-posed logistic regression at, at its core. The more sophisticated piece is how do you prove that this actually works in clinic? And so we've done a, pros- you have to do prospective clinical trials that show if I predict that this will be your breast cancer risk, now follow that patient for five years and see how accurate did you actually do in predicting their breast cancer risk. And that's when you, and those studies have to be done at large scale. These are large population health. Uh, type indications. But that standard of evidence is what you have to hit in order to be able to change medical practice, to be able to make people confident in these decisions, because the ramifications of these are are, are profound. It could mean pro- prophylactic surgery. It could mean actually taking uh, much more aggressive um, action upon your risk for cancer. And so I think that's really where it leans. It starts off more as a data science problem, but then very quickly becomes much more a biostatistician problem, a clinical development problem, and a medical policy problem. I'd be curious to know when you start to track five-year, you know, trends, and is it difficult to get patients to come back and stay in touch with them? And you know, especially when you think globally, that you know, some have more access to cars to get to a doctor's offices than others, you know, things like that. Is that, is it the patient side and the patient participating that's difficult or is it just a host of different issues that make the longer term difficult? Yeah. A host of different things, obviously people changing insurers, people changing providers. And so that's why you have to be quite proactive and collecting as much data as you can. Uh, but a lot of patients do want to be actively involved in advancing research for, for our mental health product, for instance, uh, which is, you know, helping doctors choose the right antidepressants. We have a tool that interacts directly with them. It essentially asks, um, you know, it's it's depression. So there's a host of just a couple of questions you can ask that tracks people's depression status. And so we follow up with them over time and see really high engagement with that. Um, and it's ironically, it's a more powerful study than setting up a, a really firmly regimented randomized control study in a, in a specific clinic. And even just this last year, we had came out in... Um, came out in JAMA, it was a it was the study with the VA, largest pharmacogenomic study in its time, and it had enrolled two thousand people to show the clinical significance of of um, our product gene site for mental health that uh, really really showed how that could help people lead to remission in uh, depression. That was two thousand people. We then launched a tool shortly thereafter to engage with people 
just directly to be able to show on their iPhones what was their health status and track that over time. And only six months, we enrolled 20,000 people. So the work it took us to do in five years, we were able to recapitulate at 10 times the scale in only six months by being a much more consumer-focused and engaging people directly. So there's multiple different strategies you can do to help um, to help inform inform that and really make people. And I think they, they are eager. They want to be able to be eager to help out uh, themselves and people like them. And so we definitely appreciate and respect all of that. Um, and and a, just a partner in all of this, I think I probably haven't mentioned yet, is that, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit, is just the access to care. And all these innovations in genetics are great, but if people can't afford them, if people's doctors don't know about them and can prescribe them, if they, if insurance companies don't pay for them, then then all of that is a bit for naught. And so a lot of our efforts as well with our health data intelligence is also how to inform this is not only information that's accurate, that people use to take, you know, important cre- uh, clinical treatment decisions, but it ultimately leads to more better health outcomes that you know, net is actually uh, hopefully a reduction in cost burden for the healthcare system, and and that's that's the long uh, pattern of clinical evidence development that you have that makes sure that these things are covered by insurance, such that people can afford themselves of the you know real innovations in precision medicine. So, where do you see things going next? If you were to able, if you were able to predict with you know just your own experience or kind of the trends going on in the industry that are being heavily invested in maybe in standards groups right now, what will happen in the next five years? And maybe what are some of the obstacles to industry, whether it's vendor, technologists, government, folks who listen to this podcast, what would you hope to see others doing to help in your mission? Yeah, I, th- I think there's probably two areas of that. I think there's the frontiers and real next generation of um, molecular diagnostics and ways you can use genetic information to do even more sophisticated and and, and really just things that were thought of as almost science fiction years ago. And then I think there's also the piece on the just the government policy side and how labs like us are increasingly looked at to be at higher standards of quality and, and insurers are kind of expecting that. And so there's things like the Valid Act that are working through and have for many years and the FDA constantly looking at the industry about how to ensure that, you know, all labs are performing to really high standards and, and ensuring the, the efficacy of our products. Um, but I think from a, from a new product potential is really around precision medicine, but at a very personalized scale. And, and one thing that we're working on, um, and several others is something called minimal residual disease testing or MRD. And that's for those that have cancer and have gone through surgery. You can actually do a test that looks for signatures of that tumor in the blood after surgery to see if there's a risk of remission or recurrence. And so in that case, you're sequencing not only the tumor beforehand, but you're sampling, then looking for the signature of that tumor coming back over time. And that means every single person is getting a personalized assay, a unique um, tumor-informed or unique specific signature for them. And so that's not just uh, a typical signature of the risk for disease, but it's their own unique um, signature information. And so that's really... I think stretching where we have on both the data pipelines and the and the the data infrastructure to be able to support this this very personalized way of doing research. And I think in the other area you have that as well, is that that's in the diagnostic space, but now you're seeing also in the 
in the treatment space as well, how there's been much success and published just recently, huge success in, in treating melanoma and stage four melanoma with personalized mRNA vaccines. So now this is not only looking for the recurrence of your tumor, but coming up with a, a treatment that's very specific to your tumor as well. And I think that's probably we'll see the, the evolution of this is as much as we have both the push for our health data ecosystems to be homogeneous in the sense of data sharing and the, in the health data ecosystem to be able to pull more things together and, and aggregate this information that then allows us to do the exact inverse and make a very personalized product or very personalized recommendation or a very intimate and um, an informed way of guiding people's own unique treatment decisions and, and their pathway through their, their disease prognostics. It's amazing to see how much things are evolving. I, I feel like it was maybe five years ago or so, there was kind of a call out in the industry talking about, we want to see a time where there's a genomic sequencer in every doctor's office. And probably to you, that seems like not that big of a stretch, but that idea, is that where we are today? Or it has, has the industry solved this increased testing and um, increased capture of data in a different way? Yeah, so it's really ironic because we almost did get a sequencer in every doctor's office with the COVID pandemic. I think a lot of doctor's offices were doing, uh, you know, point mutation PCR that, right? testing mm-hmm. for they all, they all had a genotype or <laughs> sitting little white little white device sitting in their office, and so we've definitely pushed to that. And I think there's probably uh, two motives. There's the the increase of access to testing by becoming more distributed in what you can do with genomics at the point of care. And But just as much as we're also now moving the goalpost and making the sophistication of the tests ever more so, and that still requires this, you know, this large high horsepower engine, this, you know, the, the lab automation I talked about and the hundreds of robots and how to support this at scale so it's still affordable and, and performant. And and so, yeah, it's as much as we've, we think we've solved the problem such that it can now be distributed out easily and we kind of make the problem more complex, but uh, that means that we're advancing as an industry, that means we're advancing in the efficacy of what we can do with genetics. And um, yeah, I think it's really exciting just to see what the how the frontiers continue to hold in the future on that. Super interesting. Kevin, um, thank you so much for joining our show. I think that conversations like this help not just the industry who's helping to solve treatment, you know, solve the problems of how to treat and diagnose, but for us, you know, as individuals thinking about taking on our own care and making sure we're asking about the right things, you've given a lot of great nuggets about things to consider, you know, for our own care. So appreciate you taking the time and certainly the great mission that you and your company have in, in our overall healthcare system. Yeah. No, th- thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to kind of just share all the hard work from the scientists and, the, and our partners and, and obviously the contributions from providers and patients as well. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. Thanks as well. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Thank you.